You know, it is that time of year where we're talking lots of food things, and I thank you, those of you who called in with some uh, your particular Thanksgiving traditions. I'm making both of those recipes that you shared with us. We're joined now by Dalton Barker, who is a reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, who sprinted, literally sprinted over here. Lots of breaking news, lots of things happening today. Busy day on, on the beat covering food and beverage in that world. So as we are looking back to 2019 and the big stories that you covered this year and the big stories ahead, um, there's so many. I, I feel like you, you barely got a chance to look up this year because there was so much coming at you. It was true. That's why I had to get a little cardio in before Thanksgiving, you know. <laughs> That's right. Burn, a, burn, a, burn some of that stuffing early. That's right. Sprinting, literally sprinting over here to be with us on the radio today. So, you know, I, I made my little list here, but I, I'm curious about your list. What are those big stories when, when you think of 2019? I mean, immediately I go to Chicken Sandwich Wars. I go to all the changes with McDonald's and all the legal action around wage and, and sexual harassment uh, allegations and things like that and i go to all the plant-based proteins it seems mm-hmm. like everybody was getting in on those things absolutely I, re- I think that what you're seeing right now is i have a story coming out later today about essentially the oversaturation of restaurants here in chicago and i think what the plant-based is kind of really trying to speak to is how do we get people through the door i think you've seen that with burger king dunkin donuts now has a plant-based breakfast sandwich I think whatever it is, it's like, how do we get more and more people through the door? And that's a challenge right now because they're similar to retail. There's just too many restaurants here in Chicago, but also nationwide. So trying to get people in the door, trying to make them customers, trying to keep them coming back over and over and over again. That's just a really big challenge for restaurants. And I think the plant-based thing is, hey, if we can get vegetarians or we can get vegans or we can get flexitarians, whatever gets them through the door, let's try it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting, though, that fast food picked that first. Mm-hmm. You know, usually we see things in, you know, higher end settings, and then it kind of trickles down to fast food. But this has been, you know, as far as, you know, vegetarian options and plant based meat it is is totally reverse of what we normally see, which is so interesting, because here it started in fast food. And still, you know, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not a vegetarian, but but some of my good friends are and they they've even noted to me, you know, often the thing that you get at a restaurant is like the vegetable pasta. Exactly. I think that what you're seeing, not only in, I think you're seeing this aggressively in kind of two different spots. Canagra has really bought into this idea of flexitarian. They're here in Chicago. Um, so your consumer products companies, your Kraft Heinz or your Canagras, they're really pushing in this space and fast food is also pushing aggressively in this mm-hmm. space. And I think that's both because across the board, those areas are a little bit struggling to try to get a foothold of, hey, people basically ate similar foods from the end of World War II all the way up to sometime in the mid-2000s, late 2000s. So how do we get this next generation? How do we target the 20-year-old? How do we target the 29-year-old who maybe eats meat you know, twice a week or three times a week, but they want some of those veg- vegetarian or vegan options? How do we cater to those people? and be relevant to them. And I think that that's really what the fast food and the, and the consumer product companies are trying to get. They're trying to establish long-term relationships like they did after World War II with the mass movement to the suburbs and feeding people with those, you know, craft mm-hmm. craft singles and yeah. this and that, you know, just your, your standard Happy Meal. 
it's starting to shift and I think they want to be ahead of the curve to form those long-term relationships with the customer. And it seems like food is doing what we saw manufactured goods do just a couple of years ago, right? Suddenly it was it was less special to have a mass-produced item that like, oh, look, I have the same couch my neighbor does. And it was more about like, I have this special, you know, I mean, the word artisan was everywhere. I mean, it was even on bread bags, like everything was suddenly artisan. And we started kind of seeing that creep into food, I think. And that's maybe where we are in the dining experience end of that. Exactly. I mean, if you think about it, you go to a McDonald's nowadays, right? You go to the kiosk, you order whatever sandwich you want. You have basically limitless abilities to customize that sandwich to exactly what you want. And I think what that's what they're trying to say is, hey, we're going to let you kind of take the lead here about what you want to eat. Obviously, there's downsides to that, too, because you have so much product specialization. You can't roll anything out because you can't have a million items for a million people, right? Mm-hmm. But it's having a little bit of flexibility on the product side, but also having the flexibility and saying, hey, vegans, vegetarians, you can eat this, too along with people that, hey, I'm just going to skip out meat for this day. I think you're really starting to see that. I, th- I think the big challenge will be, for especially for our McDonald's of the world, how do we get the supply chain built out so that we can supply all of our stores? You saw that already this year with Popeye's. It took them three months to get the chicken sandwiches, which if you kind of look, yeah. which was very interesting, from the time an a, uh, a chiclet is born to when they're ready for processing is 90 days. They were basically offline for three months. So I don't know if that was exactly it, but that, I remember wow. catching that and being like, oh, that's really interesting. Did they completely run out of their entire supply chain? There's just no chicken. Yeah, there's found. just no chicken to be found. Wow. And, and you got to think Popeye's is. They do much, chicken. Yes, but that's they're. Their thing. Exactly. <laughs> and they're much, much, much smaller than a McDonald's. Yeah. So I think if you're going to see McDonald's really move into this plant based thing, which I've talked with some sources, they believe it's going to happen in mm-hmm. 2020. They have a lot more stores. You're going to have to really have that supply chain built out because if McDonald's rolls it out, now we have, a, yeah, we have a real big game changer. Yeah. I mean, it, it will be interesting. I think you've, you've reported this number before. It's what, 14,000 stores in, in the U.S. Roughly, or North yep. America? Yep, yep, in North America. Yeah, so, so that's a lot. That's yeah. a lot to have to contend with. And then McDonald's, has they tested a plant-based meat in Canada. And in Germany. Okay. So they've done, they've done two different locations. Um, I think what they're trying to figure out is if how do we... How do we kind of get the right, the right menu, the right, you know, how do we assemble this and get it right? How does it work within the kitchen? I think that's mm-hmm. another really big thing. Someone who came out, I read a funny article, but uh, a vegan group got really mad because they were cooking the plant-based burgers at Burger King, I believe, on, on the same grill that they cooked the meat. And it's like, well, these kitchens are not designed to have yeah. one grill for each different thing. It's, it's a flat top grill. Have you ever been to, you know, a diner? You know how it's all it's made. Everything. It's all, it's everything on the same thing. So. I think McDonald's is trying to test this out in different markets internationally and trying to figure out, hey, how can we roll this out nationally? Um, how can we really come into, when we roll this out, that it it attracts a buzz, it gets people in the yeah. store? Because that's really what you're doing, all these product innovations. How do we get more people through the door? Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads to another story I felt like that we talked about a lot this year, and that was the Grubhub and the Uber Eats and all of those food delivery 
services and apps. Such a big conversation there, kind of culminating in just this week, the New York City Council saying, all right, get it together. Yeah, I think that this is a really hard business model. I think that I've read some really interesting articles about essentially all the people my age, which I'm, I'm, I'm 29, so I'm, I'm right in that millennial group, has been really basically subsidized by venture capitalists. You know, your Grubhubs, your, e, your Uber that you take, uh, some of the different services, Instacart, all these different things really don't make money. And there's really not a moat. That's you know, an interesting point. Warren Buffett yeah. always talks about you know building a moat around your business, right? Well, having someone pick up food and deliver it somewhere else, that's not a new business model. Having an app around it or having something... That's not a new, you know, I mean, the app is one thing, but as you can see, all these DoorDash, Uber Eats, they all have pretty good apps. They all work mm-hmm. pretty well. And so a lot of this business model has been subsidized. So my biggest thing that I'm curious about is what happens when the subsidization ends and all of a sudden the 3 or $4 delivery fee goes up to $11 or $10 or whatever it is to break even on that marginal unit. And I think that's a really big question, and, and you've already seen Grubhub, you know, Grubhub come out say, "Oh, this is a really tough business model." It's like, yes, yes, it is. Oh, they all but admitted a couple of yes. weeks ago, like, "This is not working." I love the. <laughs> I think I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to misquote this, but I believe they use the word "promiscuous users." That's right. Promiscuous and I, user. I, I really like that because, like, <laughs> you know, and I, I admit, you know, I when I go up to an Uber or Lyft, I, you know what I want to take? I, I pull up both apps. I look at whichever way I'm going the same spot, which one ever is cheaper. I choose that yeah. one. It's that simple. Right. And I think that all these different delivery services are realizing that too. It's not like you're just using DoorDash or just using Uber Eats or just using Grubhub. It's like, what's the one that has the best options and what yeah. I want for that night and what's going to deliver it the cheapest? And the fastest. Like yes. if that's got, if, if Grubhub's got a two hour wait and this one can give me this in 15 minutes, I'm going there. Absolutely. That's worth two extra bucks to me. Right? Exactly. So there's that. I mean, I've got my own issues with delivery because I feel bad. I'll mm-hmm. just like, I'll go get it. It's fine. I feel bad. Yeah. So there's that. I think the other interesting part of Grubhub in particular is um, at, they're saying, hey, we spend all this money to market your restaurant for you. We're getting people in the door. And then here comes the New York City Council with this data saying, that's not accurate. You're more, you're less likely to go to the restaurant if you know know they have app service delivery yeah and I, I i don't know if i've seen any hard data on this but if you're always you know getting delivery from you know four or five different spots are you a real regular to those spots in terms of if you're a regular of a you know we've always known this idea that you know restaurant industry kind of thrives on the people that come in basically monday through thursday mm-hmm. right the weekends you know most restaurants can fill up on the front the thursday nights the fridays the saturdays but it's during that midweek, and you bring in customers. And a lot of the times, that's regulars that are coming in there, kind of fueling that cash flow. Sure. But are you a regular if you just pull up, I want Indian food tonight, or I want pizza, right. and you're just looking at the what's the lowest price and what's the fastest? Like you yeah. said, what's the I'm really hungry right now. I want the pizza in 20 minutes. Can I get into it? Are you? You're just, there's t- there's 10 different options. They yeah. all probably have decent ratings. I'll just pick one. I think it'll be really interesting in the year or two ahead to look at how that shifts because I think a shift is badly needed. You know, we saw we saw that touch a lot of parts of this business. I mean, McDonald's kind of laid off of franchisees a little saying, you, okay, you don't have to use Uber Eats. You can kind of make your own deal. We've seen restaurants push back and saying, hey, up, upwards of 33% of our of, of commissions, that's a lot to be paying we're not we're already in a low margin business you know we've seen data privacy issues even we've seen restaurants saying hey you're you're routing calls to your call center instead of us like i think there's just a lot of pieces there even into like open table for reservation 
lines of mm-hmm. people kind of saying, well, we've got your data. Do you, do you, you have to keep working with us to, to saying that to restaurant owners? I think the big question, the gig economy is, can you make money doing this? Indeed. And we have not seen any of these, com- for, for the most part, we've not seen the Ubers actually turn a profit. And granted, there it looks like public markets are giving them a chance to do that. But I think that will be the big question moving forward. I agree, and I think SoftBank, you know, the, here's this Uber backer, and we work, and we saw how those two things went. So it'll be really interesting. We're talking with Dalton Barker. He is a reporter at Crane's Chicago Business about the top food and beverage stories of 2019, and looking ahead to the big stories he's going to be watching in 2020. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Amy Guth here with you until 12 o'clock. We've got lots more stuff coming up for you later in the day, of course. But we are joined right now by Dalton Barker, who is in studio with us. He reports on many things over at Crane's Chicago Business, one of those things being the food and beverage industry, which has been a big year for that. We've talked a little bit about the chicken sandwich wars. We've talked a bit about McDonald's and, of course, food delivery. And, you know, I think a piece of that we didn't touch on with food delivery was also we a thing we saw this year was kind of the virtual restaurant of of we're only going to deliver from this restaurant, but we won't have a physical location, which is kind of an interesting an interesting new thing. We even saw Let Us Entertain You kind of dabbling in that space. Exactly. I think that what you're seeing is there's a lot of cost constraints in the restaurant industry right now from higher labor costs, higher food costs, higher rent costs, uh, particularly here in Chicago that's unique to us, higher property taxes talks, mm-hmm. property taxes, which gets translated down into higher rents. And if you really look at a lot of the, I, I find it really fascinating that if you look at a lot of the restaurants, everybody knows about the Fulton Markets, the Streetervilles, the River Norths, right? Look at where Parachute's at, Avondale. Look at where a lot of these new restaurants are at, Logan Square. Logan Square is basically becoming the second Fulton Market. Well, Logan Square is still much, much, much more affordable than the Fulton Markets. And I think what you're seeing with the virtual restaurant model is, hey, delivery is costing us. Operating a dining room is costing us with the labor. So we can build a virtual restaurant in a cheaper part of town and just deliver here and just have different restaurant model or different uh, restaurant options. You know, we can do pizza here. We can do sushi here. We can do pasta here and we can operate it in a cheaper part of town and then deliver. It's not like anyone's um, any wiser than that. Yeah. It's as long as the food's good and it's quality, it comes warm and it comes on time. People are happy with that. And I think it's a way for a lot of these different, I think lettuce is going into this. Some of the different um, operators are, are looking into this because it's a way to, hey, how do we get into this delivery space, but how do we get into it and still make money and make mm-hmm. a good margin that we're used to in a more traditional restaurant? And so I think that the virtual restaurants, you've seen this, uh, it's getting really big out in, in San Francisco because of the, a lot of their problems that everyone knows about it with, with rent costs and, sure. and labor costs. And I think you're going to start seeing this more and more. I just saw a statistic the other day that I have in a story coming out later today. Since 2014 till now, the employment, the restaurant employment um, figures here in Chicago, the number of people employed in restaurants and bars has gone up by 30%. Wow. Yes. That's so, so, okay. And we also nationally are now, you know, on sub 4% unemployment. We also have minimum wage here in Chicago mm-hmm. going up. All these different factors mm-hmm. are making it harder and harder to run restaurants, right? And there's multiple people I've got on and off the record saying, you know, it's difficult to run a restaurant these yeah. days. And there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that are getting squeezed. And I think that the virtual restaurant thing is 
most likely here to stay, especially if delivery continues to grow with with people, you know, under 35. Sure. Yeah. And, and you and I talked about this recently on, on Cranes Daily, just about just how hard it is and how small those, surprisingly small, the margins are when you're running a restaurant. Three to 5%. I mean, that's three to 5%. You, you think about, oh, this person owns a restaurant, this big glamorous money. No, 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 no. It's hard work. Exactly. I mean, I mean I'm from a restaurant family. I know. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, we, we talk about all the time, about like we've talked about with Mariano's, it's, you know, your traditional grocery stores one to three percent so three to five i mean this is not you know 25 to 30 percent margins on these things where you know and i think that that maybe whatever it is people think that the restaurant life is this high life and people uh, think that about journalism too to be fair (laughs) i don't know who thinks that on them i know like you're welcome to look at my w2 and laugh all the way (laughs) indeed well okay you brought up another thing that i definitely am going to be watching in 2020 and that is uh, mariano's you've reported a lot on that they now kroger is their parent company a lot of people pushed back saying hey i kind of liked walking around my grocery store with the wine glass now it's not the same it's not the same place place i miss that olive bar i miss the things yeah and and when you really look at kroger's and we don't really know um exactly how kroger's will continue to influence not only mariana's but roundies and all its other subsidiary stores but here's just the facts the facts are kroger's is struggling kroger's just launched a national and campaign with ddbo which is their very first outside marketing group that they've ever used in their history and i forget which to me is a big tell it's a massive tell it's a massive tell it's saying what we're doing in house is not working. We got to go somewhere else. We need something fresh. And this is a national ad campaign. And I believe the company, off the top of my head, it sometime it was established in Cincinnati, sometime in the in the late 19th century. So to go through the whole 20th century wow. and, and 20 almost 20 years into the 21st century, and you've never had really outside help for advertising, and now you're bringing in. Like you said, it's a big tale. That's a big tale. All right. Well, lots of things. Everybody, follow Dalton Barker at Crane's Chicago Business and on social media. And of course, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet out links to all the things that we talked about. I have to remember all the things we talked about. We covered a lot of ground. Uh, but indeed, lots of food stories this past year. And I think no rest for you this year because there's just tons more already happening. Big stories, McDonald's, Mariano's, all that stuff. Lots and lots. So rest a lot tomorrow. I think there's a big 2020 ahead. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Amy.